once or twice every two years as a child. My parents would do me the grand favor of taking my brother and I along with them when they went to vote. It was a family experience. It was a communal experience. Everybody knew everybody my, by name in our little ward in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. And there was, at least for my benefit, the sample voting machine. It was so much fun. Punch in the punch cards. I voted for everyone and nobody all at the same time just making holes all down the card because hurrah, it was state-sanctioned destruction time. And what it did for me over the years was make me look forward to the act. I could not wait to vote for the first time for real. It was a slight disappointment, my first election, because I'd gone off to college and it was an absentee ballot and it was marked with a pen and there was no hole punching to be seen, but it still felt good. Making my choices going with my conscience, dropping it back in the mail again. We've seen already too many stories this year about those who would make the journey to the polls less than something to look forward to. In Arizona, there have been reports and pictures taken of folks in full tactical gear and sometimes with firearms orbiting around the drop boxes in Arizona where your early ballots could be dropped off, taking photos of the people as they drop their ballots, taking photos of their license plates to follow back up with them again, people having to go to court to get injunctions against people for intimidation. In California and in Colorado, there have been reports of people walking about neighborhoods doing what they call canvassing. They wear very official looking vests that say voter task force and they have badges and again, sometimes some of them are armed. And they travel door to door asking people about who lives in this house and does so-and-so who's registered to vote here still live here and what's going on. And it turns out what they're doing is compiling their own lists of potential fake voters so that they can challenge people's right to vote at the polls. And it has created the need to call into county clerk's offices to find out if these guys are official or not and the answer is they're not and it's scaring a lot of people in these neighborhoods. In Michigan, true the vote folks are training people to aggressively challenge voters at the polls to gum up the process In ancient Rome, they believed their society was held together by the state worship 
of their shared gods. The big gods of the pantheon and all the little household gods. What held the state together was the fact that people could worship them, pay their respects, pay their due obeisance to the thing that held everything together. And as the empire expanded, that is what they expected from all the lands that they occupied. Either be sure to pay due respect to our gods of the state, or at the very least, please don't get in the way and interfere in us doing what we have to do to hold the state together. And those who either would not pay respect to the Roman gods or were actively trying to hinder the state religion, the Romans referred to those people as atheists. Not the definition we're familiar with today. Atheists were those who would not follow a state religion even while they followed their own. Now the deal that they had in ancient Judea at the time was, okay, you can worship your one God, but just don't get in the way of us having our temples and doing our thing. And for the most part, the state agreed, except for, of course, the zealots of the time who were trying to force out any religion that was not their own. And the same followed through with the early Christians of the time, because they worshipped but one God and would not acknowledge the others and were actively trying to pull Roman citizens away from the worship of the state gods, Christians as a whole were referred to by the Romans as atheists because they were getting in the way of the thing that held the state together. Sure, we have hundreds of gods, but somehow yours is the only one that's real? Okay, um, we're not all right with that. And I will note that eventually the Romans did adopt Christianity as their state religion over the old religion, and that was pretty much the end of the Roman Empire. As that happened, we moved into the Byzantine from there. I'm not making any kind of judgment calls on any of this. I'm just laying out some history here for you. We don't have a state religion in the United States. We are expressly forbidden from establishing any sort of state religion. And yet there are things that tie us together, that hold our nation together and keep it functioning. And the practice of democracy is that one big thing. So it's a civic religion, let's call it. It is something that we must attend to individually in order to maintain the state. There is, metaphorically, a temple of democracy that we are called to enter from time to time and pay our due respect to. Pay our respects to it, and even if you're not going to enter the temple, don't, don't get in the way. Don't interfere with the practice of our religion civic.
I first preached on the metaphor of the temple of democracy about 15 years ago. And at the time, my greatest concern was for folks of my generation, especially who had entered into a kind of well-earned cynicism about the practice of democracy. My cohorts and I of a similar age had grown up in the era of the Watergate hearings, and we had inherited from the adults around us as we grew up, for the most part, some well-earned cynicism about the worth of practicing democracy, of participating in the system at all. It doesn't matter was the refrain I would hear over and over again from certain of my friends. Meanwhile, I was looking forward to punching all the holes that I could in a ballot. Today, I doubt there are quite so many people who would say out loud at least that their participation in the civic religion of democracy does not matter. I think we've seen all too well that participation is necessary, vital, that lack of participation has a negative effect on our lives. But now, I return to the temple because of our interference problem. The zealots are out in force looking to bar our way from entering the temple, looking to prevent us from participating in the system that binds us together because they don't like the particular household god we might be paying respect to. We do not worship their small god. And there is work going on within the systems of the state power and without the systems of the state power trying to make changes to close the temple gates to as many people as possible. Whether it's aggressively ejecting people from the voter rolls or it's marching around polling places in camouflage with a rifle on their backs. The temple is under threat right now. So what do we do about it? The so what is the thing I struggle with every week when I preach. What's my point here? What do we do in the face of power and activity that seems daunting and insurmountable? And my answer this year is that we shore up the ranks of the priesthood in the temple. I should make a small public service announcement at this point, a little disclaimer. I am not advocating for a state religion this morning in this sermon. I am not advocating we tear down the walls of separation of church and state. And yet here I am, once again, consciously, purposefully giving a sermon on our democratic process ahead of an election. Because the election sermon, at least in Unitarian Universalist circles, and I think in congregational churches as well, is a time-honored tradition. 
even as fraught as the practice may seem, even as blurred as the lines may seem to get. And we do this because democracy is practiced in this country in part because the early pilgrim churches that gave birth to the congregational churches and to the Unitarian churches were democratic institutions. Before there was a democratic state in North America, there were democratically run churches. The Cambridge Platform of 1648 defined how churches would govern themselves from the floor up, from the people outward. And yes, granted, the people did not include anyone who was not a man at that point, but it was a radical departure from how religion was run letting people have a say in the statements of belief and how a church is run and how the resources are spent and who gets to be the minister who is often chosen right from within the ranks of the pews and sent off to get educated and come back and take care of the people. And when the ranks of membership in the church looked to dwindle because only the original founders somehow were allowed to be members, they found ways to perpetuate the idea of membership and who could be involved and who was considered able to participate in the process. And they did this overall to preserve the freedom of conscience that they had come to these shores searching for preserve the freedom of conscience. And as a result, the people comprised the community and they cared for it and they kept it running. It's probably no surprise then that among the founders of the United States are many Unitarians who understood what it meant to practice a democratic process. And you see that reflected today in our own fifth principle. We affirm and promote the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process in our churches and in the world. The people make up the community and are its caretakers and make the decisions. So if I talk about democracy and I talk about elections from the pulpit, it's because, one, I feel a responsibility to propagate the inheritance I have received and we have all received from the practice of our religious ancestors, that the people govern. And I feel called to bring it to our attention and call us back to democracy's place in our own basic values and principles, the importance of the voice of the people ever expanding in all our communities. And so back to our interference problem, back to the zealots of today. There are people going out of their way to bar the way of citizens to participate in the civic rituals of democracy, barring the way to enter the temple. And they do it in the name of integrity of the system, and they do it in the name of patriotism, 
as they pick and pull at the threads that bind us all together as a nation at the same time. And they do it because only their God is real. As small as he may be. The irony is not lost on me also that it is a form of Christian nationalism that is insisting upon this one small God. So what? What are we called to do then as a people of faith who hold the practice of democracy at the heart of our faith? As I said, do we shore up the ranks of the priesthood in the temple? Because one of our other inheritances besides the practice of democracy is the grand Protestant tradition of the priesthood of all believers. We are all responsible for carrying out the rituals of the faith. The temple of democracy needs its own dedicated priests if it is to remain standing. Sometimes the work of the priesthood in the temple of democracy is big and it's flashy. It's grand public speeches and it's marching for rights and it's taking acts of risks on risk on behalf of others who are being barred from access to the rights they should have. And sometimes those risks cost lives. But mostly, and I'm speaking from experience, the work of the priesthood is all about the little day-to-day -day details that you don't notice until they're not done. Making sure the candles are stocked making sure inventory's done, making sure the work and the volunteer rotas are maintained so everybody knows what they're doing, making sure the bills get paid. The priesthood and the temple of democracy looks like this then. It is working to register people to vote, going out for those registration drives. It is doing all we can to counter the misinformation and the disinformation that is out there, especially when elected officials are encouraging doubt and mistrust in the systems. And the priesthood looks like going to work at the polls to help get people checked in, to assist people with their ballot when they need special assistance, to make sure that the ritual gets carried out smoothly and timely and it looks like supporting the legal efforts that are out there to fight against those who would continue to try to bar the way into the temple in the first place. And in this very moment, it also means holding accountable those zealots on the local level who are actively trying to interfere or the zealot adjacent. There will be people monitoring the polls. Sometimes they might be armed. I don't know if it's going to be a problem in our community or not, but we won't know until we get to Tuesday, perhaps. The work of the priesthood right now and in the next couple of days looks like this, getting in the way of those who are trying to get in the way. 
This is the toll-free number for the Election Protection Hotline. This is a nonpartisan group that's working across the country to make sure on the day of, among other things, people who are getting barred to exercise their right can work around the obstacles in their way, whatever that might look like. Never confront the zealots on your own. They're dangerous. But do pick up a phone if you need to. And here's the thing about the work of democracy. I know in this room we are a dedicated bunch. We work our butts off this time of year. Phone banking, knocking on doors, working for our respective parties, advocating for our candidates, and all of that is important in the practice of this civic religion. And I thank all of you who do that work because it is absolutely necessary and vital to the maintenance of our democracy. And all of that work only bears fruit if the temple remains standing and the doors remain open. On Wednesday morning, we're probably going to feel some sense of relief that it's all over, possibly some grief depending on the outcome of things. And we can take a little break on Wednesday. But democracy never closes, and the zealots never rest. And our call is to be priests in the temple of democracy, ensuring that all who choose and want to exercise their choice of conscience can pay their respects in the way that our nation needs and doing all we can to ensure that those who would stand in the way are rendered powerless. And so as we move forward, may we find the call within the call, our role in the grand temple of democracy, our work that keeps the doors open so that no one, no one, will fear to make a choice to worship in the temple as they see fit. May it be so.